Hello and welcome to The Rewriters, a celebration of people who have shirked convention, expectation and even their own limitation to rewrite their story on their terms. Each episode we'll dig into the inspired and very real life stories of people who have done just that, rewritten their story. I'm a nosy practical optimist too, so expect all of the nitty gritty details. If you're an ambitious seeker craving a different kind of lifestyle, career or business, but have felt held back by your own or other people's beliefs about what's possible or permissible, The Rewriters is for you. Welcome to this episode of The Rewriters with Monique Shaw. Today's rewriter is Paralympic athlete Tim Lodge. Tim spent his 20s and 30s living the high life with a successful career in corporate finance. But although on the outside he had all of the trappings of success, on the inside he was suffering, and by his 40s he was drinking daily and struggling with anxiety and depression. That all started to change when at 41 he received a phone call that would change his life in ways he could never have imagined. Tim's story is remarkable, from unhealthy 41-year-old sales director to Paralympic athlete on a podium collecting a medal. But this isn't a story of transformation or achieving the unimaginable. This is a story of self-discovery, self-acceptance, and coming full circle. It's the story of one man and his boat. Tim, welcome to The Rewriters. Hello, Monique. How are you? I'm very well. Where are you joining us from today? I'm in Guildford, sunny Guildford, Surrey, actually. Yeah, it's a nice day today. So for those of our listeners who don't know uh, too much about you or your story, can you tell us a little bit about your current story and who you are and how you spend your time? Yeah, so my name's Tim Lodge. I'm a Paralympic canoeist. I'm also a father to my daughter, Neve, and I run a business called Zenval, which is a well-being business that uh, focuses on enabling people to maximise their human potential through what I've learned and my life lessons of becoming a, a Paralympic athlete in my 40s. But before all of that, you described yourself as being out of shape and unhappy working in corporate finance for several decades until a phone call in your 40s. Yeah, so it was a day that I think I'll always remember, January the 14th, 2013. Paralympic sport had just had a great summer with the London 2012 Paralympics and there was a lot of investment into Paralympic sport and they wanted to grow different sports and canoeing had become one of those. I used to canoe as a, as a child and um, the phone call was from a guy called David Battershell who I trained a bit with and coached me a bit in my teenage years. As we said, I'd been working in the corporate sector for over 20 years prior to this phone call and was a far, as far from a high-performing athlete as you could potentially get. But the phone call was, um, I was in the pub at the time and um, it was a Monday evening. I remember it vividly and it was a huge crossroads in my life. He was asking me if I was interested in coming back to canoeing after being out of the boat for over 20 years and, and would I like to try and become a Paralympic athlete. Was there any doubt or hesitation? Initially, the feeling was of, of, of excitement and joy, really, and, and amazement that I'd received this phone call. Um, I remember saying to my mate who was with me at the time, I've just had a call to become part of the Paralympics. And they just, you know, my mates around me in the pub just laughed pretty much. But um, I'd never had a phone call like that. I've had similar situations in my career where I've either met people or crossed somebody's path that has accelerated my my personal growth, if you like. Um, I felt very excited, I guess a little overwhelmed as well, but initially 
incredibly excited because I'd loved the Paralympics um, the year before. It was an incredible event. And to think that I could potentially be part of something like that, the phone call with my mother straight away afterwards was, was exactly that. We were both incredibly excited about what the future might hold. So you hung up the phone in that pub with your mate. What happened then? I stayed in there till about two o'clock in the morning. <laughs> I was going to be a Paralympic athlete. <laughs> Do that tomorrow. Um, and, then, and then I woke up in, I mean, that is the honest truth of it. Um, myself, a mate of mine, Julian, and, and another couple of lads in the pub um, literally celebrated it with God knows how much Guinness. And, um, and then I woke up in the morning and I phoned David back up, David Battershell back up. And I said, look, I really want to meet. That's when it really sort of hit home when I woke up that morning and, and with another hangover thinking, right, let's have a look at this, have a think of this. And I, and I went down to meet him at the canoe club and he sat me on a canoeing machine, which is very similar to a, a rowing machine. Um, and I lasted about 30 or 40 seconds and I was hot, sweaty and exhausted. But from that moment, from that day on, I think it was a Tuesday, and I met him on the, I think I met him on a Thursday evening, actually. From that moment on to this day that I'm talking to you today, I have, bar some injuries and stuff and a few holidays, I have trained every single day. That's incredible. So what had happened in the 20 years from being out of the boat to getting back into the boat in your 40s? Can you... Talk through what those 20 years had been like in corporate finance. You know, I started my career in 1990 um, as a trainee broker for Jardine Credit Insurance. And it soon became very apparent to me that I was I was a good socialiser. I was a good mixer with people. You know, I enjoyed the good times and, and, and the good finer things in life, for want of a better word, or what I thought the finer things in life were there. Um, and that involved a lot of socialising. So I, I very quickly got from being a broker into a more sales-driven role. And as I said, I was a very good networker. So, and I liked to party as well. So the two things in in unison was a big part of of a sales job was taking people out and and living the excessive lifestyle and all of that. And I was good at opening doors and 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 closing deals and stuff. So that sat with me, but. The underlying current within all of that was what I found later on in my life to be quite a destructive lifestyle in terms of my physical and my, um, and my, and really more importantly later on in my life, my, my mental health and my mental well-being, um, and and then the chance to become an athlete at, at, at the end of that sort of you know was 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 where I started to see the shift, but but it, it took its toll on my 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 body. Um, my disability and 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 my mental health definitely how did it take its toll on your your body what was the disability that that you have so I was born with a disability called gross telepes which um, is similar to club feet but I had a very severe case of it um I was under the care of one of the top orthopedic surgeons in the country and he said they were the worst feet that he'd ever seen you know I've had Sitting here today, I've had 54 anaesthetics on my legs um, relating to operations or procedures that I've had on my legs over over the years. And it will always be the case for me that the but the, the joints that they've built um, will degenerate over time. And um, what the uh, surgeons thought is we wouldn't that wouldn't happen until I was sort of in my 60s or 70s. But at the end of my towards the end of my 30s, I started to be in a lot of pain, and I went to see my surgeon and. 
at that point, he said, you know, you've got to change your lifestyle, Tim. He said, you're overweight. He said, your diet's terrible. You know, rheumatoid arthritis and all the other things that I wasn't expecting to get to later on in life were, were coming back. And a lot of that was due to my excessive lifestyle and my weight, really. Mm. I'm not uh, an athlete by any stretch of the imagination and I turned 40 in January and the thought of me getting a phone call that would put me on the path to becoming an athlete is kind of out of my realms of possibility. Um, So could you talk me through what happened after you had, you know, you got back onto the, um, the canoe machine to actually going out and training with Team GB? It was so exciting. It was. I remember starting to train on Eaton Dorney on the lake there with um, Ed McKeever and, and Liam Heath and Johnny Schofield, all guys that won medals in the able-bodied Olympic events. Um, it was incredible, you know. I, I remember standing in the shower with them, like <laughs> um, <laughs> about six months into this, and, and I'm sitting there, and, you know, standing there, and it, as, as you all do when you when you perform you know when you do sports after training you all get in the shower and I'm standing there naked with three Olympians and I'm thinking how the hell have I ended up here do you know what I mean what, what's happened here and um but everybody was really welcoming and really friendly and and really helpful and yeah I mean for the first couple of years it it, it was just all a bit of a dream and you know I keep mentioning mum but she was such a big part of this and and she used to say to me can you believe it can you just believe it and, and I'm and I never believed it. I didn't believe it for, for many, you know, I didn't really believe it until about two years ago, to be fair. But it, it was incredible and, and, and it still is incredible. But, you know, I, I lived, I moved, moved to Nottingham as well in 2015 after going to the World Championships and the World Cup in 2015. I won a bronze medal in the World Cup in, in Duisburg in 2015. And and then I moved moved to Nottingham, finished work, and, and then I was full part of the team gb setup up there and and that was that was incredible because i'd i'd watched you know you'd had london and you'd had you know jessica ennis and 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 bradley wiggins and you know you, you they'd opened the lid of high performance sport on the tv so you'd seen these places you know you'd seen these training environments and they were really exciting and all of a sudden i was in that environment you know we had lots of people looking after us and and it was a great time and I learned a hell of a lot, but the, I didn't deal with the pressure of that very well, I don't think. And I was coming backwards and forwards at weekends, seeing my girlfriend, and it was all, it was quite stressful in in, in times, you know. And, and I thought by taking myself away from everything to focus solely on that one thing was, was the thing that was going to get me to, to Rio. But as it happened, the two years, in the two years I spent in Nottingham um, with the GB setup, I didn't get any faster. Um my feet were playing up a lot because I was stressed. I wasn't necessarily very happy. And I, and I tended to focus on making everyone else around me happy rather than myself. And, and um, there was a trophy called the John O'Broom Trophy up there, which was given to the athlete that um, the values of the, of um, the athlete life and was the best part of the team for the, for that year and all the athletes and staff voted for this person and I got that trophy two years on the bounce and but I wasn't winning any races so I was doing everything right but the weekends I'd come back home and then I'd go back up there and it was just it wasn't until mum passed away bless her and then and then I um, moved back and 
I hadn't really trained that much and I went up to race in the national championships and um, there was no pressure on the race at all. Um, and I had the best race that I'd had since 2015. Um, you know, Rio, the Rio Paralympic trials came in 2016. I didn't, I didn't race well at all there. Um, I think in the back of my mind, I still felt that I wasn't good enough. Um, but then when I won this silver in the nationals a year later and beat, beat a chap that I, I hadn't beaten for a few years, Johnny Young, that I really felt that there's something in that, you know, there wasn't any pressure on that race. So I wasn't worried about what people would think of me. I wasn't worried about what I was going to put on social media and all of these external forces that I relied upon and, and to make me feel better and make me feel good weren't, weren't there. It was just me in the boat and I just enjoyed the race and I, and I did really, really well. And, and then since then, really, I've just been on a path to finding my own way with the sport and very lucky to work with a coach called Ivan Lawler, who's a very honest, open chap, speaks his word. And, and the first training session I had with him was to um, where, where he simply said to me, you love, you like the idea of all this, Tim, he said, but you don't believe it. And we've been working on that self-belief ever since. And um, you know, coming into this year, into into Tokyo, um, you know, I was in a good place. I was in good shape and and ready to go. But it's it's an it's an incredible environment. But for somebody that had a lack of self worth, if you like, and was um, spent a fair amount of his time trying to get acceptance from everyone else, it's a pretty harsh environment to be in um, because you're continually being pushed and tested every single day in every single training session. And and I think in Nottingham, when I look back at that time, as much as I enjoyed the training and being around with the team and everyone like that, I I think that was one of the reasons that I didn't get any quicker while I was there, you know. So you've been at your your quickest and most highest performing when it's when it's you in the boat and not a lot else on your mind. Yeah, well, I didn't put the pressure on that national championships in that way, and and um, it's hard, you know. The the race that I do is a two hundred meter event. It's over in forty odd seconds. Do you know what I mean? So th there's not really much time for error. And believe me, that feeling when you're in on the start line, ready to go and sprint off, is is a feeling that you could bottle up. I mean, it's an incredible feeling, but it's. I'm. I was very disappointed about this year because, um, I was in a good. I was in a good place really, and ready ready to race for selection in April. And I'd been out in Australia. You know, I had a very serious accident in Sri Lanka last year. At a, a, a retreat that I went to on a on a went to a yoga and a meditation retreat and I had a really pretty serious accident and I'd learned a lot of mindfulness techniques that enabled me to recover from surgery better than I'd ever ever done in my life and I was starting to learn all this stuff and and I'm thinking right well we're ready for Tokyo and then obviously COVID hit and the games has been postponed and then Funnily enough, as life always does, you know, we're talking about rewriting the story. I don't know whether I could rewrite this one any more times, but um, <laughs> then I was lucky enough to be introduced to Karen, and and now she's she's taken my mind onto the next level, and I'm I'm now training for my own with with no specific date for Tokyo or any competitions in the UK in front of me. I'm now training purely based on my physical and mental performance. That is it. At the moment, I'm training my mind and my body at the same time, and I've never really approached it like that. And it feels a very comfortable place to be in because there's 
there's that expectation isn't there anymore you know and albeit in April when I came back from Australia and the Paralympics was cancelled um or was postponed and this trials for the Paralympics was postponed I was you know I'm not getting any older I'm 40 48 now and I sat there when when I got home just managed to see my family and then we're on lockdown the next next day and I've been away for three months and I'm like right okay I've been doing this for nearly eight years and there's a chance that this won't happen next year as well. And is that it? My Paralympic dream is over, you know? What I I thought when I first got that phone call in 2013, this is it, it could all be finished, that's it. I'm like, you know, I'm going to be 52 by the time Paris comes around. And is that it? You know, is it it all been for nothing? And then that's the human human reaction that anyone would have at that point in time. But then I knew, I knew at that point that no, come on, this is, this, 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 we've just got to bring this back day to day. And I think that's very true of the world that we're living in for all of us at the moment. You just have to, my mum always used to say it and everybody said it, you know, live each day and all of that, but there's no truer time than that at, at the present where there's so much uncertainty in the world that literally each day, all I want to do is, is to enjoy my training and, and, um, and continue to, to, to be ready. Um, you know, some athletes are looking at it differently and they're training up to their full capacity as they would. But for me, I've sort of stripped it back to I want to work on cultivating my mind a little bit more first and then and then apply that to my training. And, and when I do race again, I'm, I'm really, really excited about that whenever that will be. What I absolutely love about your story is and the way that it, the, your your thought process around the training has gone from focusing on that end in mind, which I can't even begin to imagine what that, that is like for an athlete to have years and years of training all leading up to one one moment. Um, but but adjusting that focus on that end point to you and the boat and you competing against yourself and connecting with yourself and your mind and just making it about the process and the journey um, that being present rather than thinking of the destination with the canoeing and certainly over the last eight years with trying to trying to fix myself as I thought I needed to do you know um I would go and see the next coach the next therapist right these are going to be the ones they're going to be the ones that are going to fix me you know because I was always focused on somebody help needing to help me to get to the outcome and the outcome's always external and and really it becomes less relevant when you focus more on living in the present moment. And it's taken me a lot of hard work to actually learn and understand about this. But, you know, we're talking about rewriting and recreating and changing and all of that sort of stuff. But really, it is just day to day. And and that's all that matters the moment. You know, me here now sitting talking to you about this is, is all that matters at the moment. There isn't anything else but this moment. And it's quite difficult to grasp, but once you start to understand that, then in terms of my training and my application, and that's then therefore when you start to, to live a little bit more like that, that, that it becomes a lot easier. And, and now as an example, when I, when, when I train, I, I do certain things to bring myself back into right into that, into that moment. And I now know that if I do every single thing, to the absolute best of my ability and I'm completely engaged in everything that I do that 
the conflict and the judgment of myself that I would have after that event is diminished because I know that I did my best at that point in time. And I always used to say to myself as an example, Monique, that, oh, you'll be all right, Lodgie, you'll be fine, you'll be fine, you'll be fine. You know, if I was in a tough moment, I'd get in the boat and I'd say, oh, you'll be fine, you'll be fine. That's now changed in my mindset. And I said, I am fine. I now say to myself, I am fine, you know, because I am. How do you go from zero to daily, from not being an athlete to being an athlete? Or it sounds like it was almost overnight. How does that happen? There was a lot of pain involved initially, physically. <laughs> you know, my body, my body hurt a lot, for, um, and I had to have some quite extensive physio. I, I mean, it's interesting because people say, and people have often asked me, you know, how do you get up in the morning? How do you do it? But I'm sure any other athlete would say the same. If you do a sport that you love, and and can, I, I love being on the water. I've always been happy on the water. As a kid, as soon as I sat in a canoe, I felt the same as all the other children because my feet were hid under the cockpit. You know, I've always loved the sport that much. So for me, initially, it wasn't really, you know, I wasn't training to Paralympic standard certainly for at least a year really to be fair you know the first year was was you know I was I was hanging on for dear life really but within three or four weeks I started to see a change in my eyes and my skin because I was eating differently I was it was just the exercise really daily exercise and and David was really good with me at the start you know he eased me in didn't put too much pressure on me we just enjoyed it and and that that was really the how i mean in in answer to your question how i I think it was just the overall excitement of the whole the whole thing and i lacked i've always lacked a lot of self-confidence in myself and this really gave me something big to talk about rather than just being the guy at the bar that always bought everybody the drinks and the you know the man about town and everything else this was I can I can now, you know, looking back, this has changed now. But when I look back, I can now walk around and say that I'm a Paralympic athlete. Everybody's mm. going to love me more now, you know, and all of this <laughs> sort of stuff. And, and that, that, if I'm honest, was a, was a driver. And then I remember about six months in, we went towards the end of that first year, we went up to London as a family with um, my mum, my sister, and my sister's daughters and my daughter. And we were walking somewhere in town and mum said to me, she said, you're walking differently. And that was a huge moment for me to think that they're, they're, I always knew that there was going to be good in this. But for my mum, who'd known me since I was a kid, to say that my, my gait had started to change. You know, I started to walk slight, walk differently to what I ever have done before. I wasn't hunched over. I'd lost a little bit of weight. My, You know, I stood taller than I ever had done. And that, that was... Really looking back, one of the real milestones in this journey for me, for her to say that was, was I felt incredibly proud of that, you know. Mm. And so what had happened with your the shift in your mental health? So from going from no exercise to, to daily exercise, you spoke about when you were living that lifestyle, it was having, it was taking its toll on you physically, but also mentally. What was the shift there after you took up canoeing again and sat back in the boat? really to be honest with you Monique it's, it's all based around alcohol really and and, and um, the anxiety that, that 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 then bred in me um, you know when you drink the amount that I was pretty much every single day of the week um, 
you tend to just go round and round and round on a roller coaster. You know, you, you, you're never really hugely hungover. You're never really hugely awake. You're just sort of living that life, and that's how it is at that point. But when I stopped, when I stopped drinking in the week, um, all of a sudden, a lot of my feelings that I was suppressing. Um, when I look back, that I would have been suppressing by going out and having a drink every night. You know, everybody says, oh, I need it to relax, I need it to do this, and that's fair enough. But when I when I stopped, all of a sudden I had all of these huge feelings that would come to light that I was suppressing previously. So that was a big that was a big shift initially, and I started to get a lot of clarity during the week, starting to really feel emotions and and feelings and think about stuff that I hadn't necessarily thought about before because it was always just so much fun because <laughs> I was always out all, out mm. all the time having great great times and if you like I guess one way to sort of describe it is the world stopped spinning for a little while you know what I mean and 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 then you know at the weekends I'd catch up with my mates and stuff like that and and, and go out and have beers and stuff and and then sort of regroup again on the Monday. And that went on for a number of years that way, you know. And, and um, But, yeah, I, th- I think in terms of my mental health at that point, I I knew that I lacked self-confidence and self-worth and, and that bred a lot of anxiety in me. And that, as I later found out with the people that I've worked with on that, that, you know, a lot of that goes back to, to my childhood and this isn't sort of poor me, poor kid or anything like that. But, you know, to be born with a disability and then and then lose my father very young and and, um, and all of that it took its toll on my, my self-confidence, you know, and my belief in myself. And, and that canoeing and, and being part of sport started to give me some of that back. But that's taken me a long time, you know, that's taken me about eight years to get to the point where I am talking to you today about it in a very open and accepting way. I think mm. the one thing that I, I've i always been very good at is I've always had a, a desire to learn um, about it. I've always felt that there's work to be done on that and, and very aware of my feelings. And, and I guess the change in lifestyle gave me the clarity to be able to actually really feel feel it and do the work on it really you know yeah it brings it into um into our sort of consciousness I suppose or our our awareness I'm I'm quite super curious and a lot of the stuff that I read uh for people who um, stop drinking alcohol or reduce their alcohol consumption is that they feel great but then also that self-medication or that buffer between uncomfortable feelings or boredom or, you know, whatever else it may be, that's gone. And then you have to sit with those uncomfortable feelings or sit with that um, that space and address it and, and deal with it, which can be very uncomfortable, but also really rewarding over the long term. Yeah, that that that's exactly right, and and you know now I I can I can go out and have a beer and stuff with my friends, and I don't spend the you know for the for the first what, four or five years six years of this. If I did go out and do something, I'd beat myself up about it for the next week, thinking that I shouldn't have done this, I shouldn't have done that, and it just made me even more critical, you know, mm. overcritical of myself really, and and 
we're all human, you know, we all do things. And I lived my life a certain way for many, many years, you know, many years. And it doesn't, you're not going to change. It doesn't matter, you know, for me anyway, some people may be able to, but it's taken me a long time to, to, to be able to accept, accept that and, and see that I'm, you know, that I'm all right as I am, you mm. know, and I started working, we'll talk a little bit about this later on, I'm sure, but there's been some key people that have mentored me and helped me and a lady called Karen Adams that I've started seeing this year has has taken it to the next level for me. And the first thing, you know, she said to me, she said, because I kept saying I need to, you know, there's all this change, 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 change. And um, I used to say to her, you know, um, I know I can do this bit better. I could change that and change that. And she said, you don't need to change. She said, you're your own Everybody is their own masterpiece, you know. Everybody's perfect as they are. It's just you've got layer upon layer upon layer of learned behaviours that you've used that have coped and served you well or not, may have served you well, may have not served you well over many years that you've got used to, to, to thinking and dealing and what living in a certain way. And mm. that's not changing. You, it's accepting that and going back to what was at the start, really. And, and that's really what full circle the canoeing's done for me because it's something that there was the first thing I did as a kid where I felt normal you know um and to for me now to to for that to come back into my life in my 40s and and then catapult me into this world of self-acceptance that I've come into and self-belief and and happiness is a funny word but you know generally I am happy but really more than anything I'm I'm very peaceful and calm in my own skin now and I never was for, for many many years so it's that's a, a a great story in itself in terms of in terms of that but yeah so what I love about that is because I think so many people can relate to that feeling like if you're going to make changes to have better mental health better physical health better well-being you can almost turn that into another way to self-flagellate or you know, be, be quite harmful when we get extreme and we start to restrict things from our diet and, you know, take things out completely. And if we slip up, then we're punishing ourselves. So it sounds like in, in making those changes, you've been able to not go, to, to rebalance and I suppose integrate the two or the many different elements of, of yourself and, and who you are and, and as Karen described, um, a masterpiece. So how did you, because I think this is a really interesting point and something that I'd really like to learn um, a little bit more about, how did you go from starting to exercise, train daily, changing your diet, um, reducing the um, alcohol intake, et cetera, to then getting to that point where you were feeling guilty if you did have a night out with your friends and um, feeling like you shouldn't have done that. How did you rebalance that so you were able to have the role of athlete, training, healthy, focused on your well-being, and also out with your mates, socialising, you know, the, the, the two being able to coexist or the many different elements of you being able to coexist? Yeah, I mean, that really is a great question. And and if if I'm honest, really, Monique, for, for sort of five years of this journey, four or five years of this journey, I constantly battled with that. I, I, I couldn't, I, I couldn't accept it. And couldn't understand it and was still incredibly overcritical of myself. It's really only the last two years, really, that I've 
been able and more and more really the last 12 months really where I've I've actually been able to live live in in some sort of balance and that and that's not whether things are right or wrong but the the issue here lies as far as I see it is when you conflict with yourself in your mind you know so if there's any conflict so whether you talk to somebody, have a conversation with someone and then put the phone down and think, oh, I shouldn't have said it like that. Perhaps I should have said it like this. Or, you know, the way that you explain yourself to yourself um, and in psychological terms, they call it your explanatory style. And I met one of my mentors is a guy called Drew Povey. And the first thing that he said to me when I, you know, when I first met him is that you're very, very overcritical of yourself, you know, and, and, you have to quieten and quieten that voice if you get yourself to a place of full acceptance of who you are because you can't continue to conflict with yourself because you'll just end up, as you've said, the word slip up, you know. It's not a slip up, is it? It's life. It's life. You deal with things in a certain way because of what you've learned throughout your entire life. Um you're just human. And that's what Drew said to me straight on. He said, we're all only human, Tim. We're all only trying to do our best. And you hear that a lot, especially at the moment with the way the world is at the moment. Everyone's trying to do their best. But I think the, the, there's two key, two areas to this. It's conflicting with myself and quieting in that mind. And in, in, a, in answer to your question is, how do I combat that? How do I combat that at the moment is I I have various mindfulness techniques that I can turn the dials up and down on as, as I need them. And one good way to, to, to look at quieting your mind and stopping to conflict yourself around negative thoughts and behaviours is by, um, you know, overlaying that with gratitude in terms of journaling and, and, and thinking about the things in your life that you're grateful for. And so filling up, filling up your world with positive stuff rather than negative stuff, you know, or conflicting stuff. And the other thing is, as I see it, is judgment and, and sort of moving away from a life of judging yourself and those people around you into a world of observing yourself and those around you. And once you make that shift in your mind, then really the problems that you always thought that you had or the problems that you thought you know what you were worrying about what was going to happen what you have done what you might do all of these sort of you know that breeds either anxiety or, or depression on an individual that's only because you're judging that situation and whether you're judging yourself or the people around you if you observe that and start to think well actually why is this happening to me um it's not happening to me anymore it's happening for me and once you start to realize that then the problems that you created in your mind tend to dissipate quite a bit does that does mm. that sort of make sense and, and so I think conflict judgment move into observation kindness of yourself and they talk about filling up your internal well and and being grateful for what you've got and not looking outside to external factors for gratification that that coming from inside you and once you start to learn that then that's when over the last 12 months and really with the work that I've been doing with Karen which has just been completely mind-bending for me um now i can sit here in my house and i can find myself and catch myself thinking and conflicting and and, and then stopping that and just stopping it it's gone it's gone and then life's a very simple place to be you know
Yeah, I think it's um, one of the things that I find really useful for any kind of anxious thinking or being in a, a moment of, of, of anxiety is it's really, really hard to feel anxious at the same time as feeling grateful or present or compassionate, whether that be compassionate for yourself or for others. Um, so if I ever find myself in a moment where um, I can feel that an anxious sort of response in my body, I might not even know what it's coming from, but getting uh, becoming aware of it and then, then getting curious about it, oh, what, what's going on there, and being kind or putting kind to yourself or putting yourself in a moment of presence, what's going on, I'm in this moment now, it, it's a really good alleviator for that, um, for those moments of anxiety. So what you talk about there, replacing judgment with, with kindness and compassion um, and curiosity is absolutely in line with, um, with, with what I do as well. And I think that's a really, really helpful way to think about it and to reframe it. Life does get in the way, life, do, life does throw you challenges, but I think the more honest that you can be with yourself about the way that you're living your life, then um, the easier it becomes, if that makes sense. Mm. So do you have any daily rituals or daily habits or things that you do, you know, each week um, or regularly to keep your mental health on track or to keep you on track? Yeah, so um, I, it's interesting. I... I I like to think so. The work that I did with Karen was pretty extensive. We had daily daily practices and rituals, which I which I do keep up. But I tend to to do, to to sort of turn a dial on them depending on how I'm feeling each day, if that makes sense. So mm. um, mindfulness practices, you, you know, the big one for me, the big two for me, really, are Reiki, which is a form of um, energy healing that you can perform on yourself. Um, that I learned with. Um, Ty and Jenna in Sri Lanka at the Talala retreat that's that's part of my everyday routine so that can range between sort of 20 minutes 10 minutes 15 minutes 20 minutes of that every morning when I wake up um depending on how I'm feeling and how busy I am um I will do some meditation as well around that but the majority of it is the Reiki um the other thing that I love and that has changed my life and that I've been doing since for now for about 18 months is cold water therapy and, and breath work around being in cold water. So we all may have heard of the Iceman Wim Hof. Mm. Uh, so I've studied his processes and I have um, at least one or maybe two cold showers or baths every day. Um, it improves your vascular performance um it, yeah it's it's, it's there's huge benefits in terms of um controlling your breath under fear and fright um you know re reduction in heart rate stress levels everything it's incredible so um that and then yoga um i do at least three four times a week um, which i love um and then really the the main one i guess um, it's funny when I list them all out, people think, well, what, what time have you got to do anything else? <laughs> do mindfulness practices every day. But um, the other thing that I that I can safely say for, for everybody to do at least once a day if I can is just get into nature. And I'm lucky to be able to go on a river and a canoe a boat. But if we're not on the river, then I make sure that I'm on my bike up, and, up, in, the, up in the woods um, or on the ranges, the army ranges near where I live. Mm. 
So how did Zenvel come about? So yeah, we um, when I was in Australia this year, I had a phone call from an old um, CEO that I used to work for, a company called Vermilio, a chap called Chris McGibbon, and he was at a bit of a crossroads in his life, and he'd seen that I'd been to Sri Lanka and, and all of that, and was really keen to find out what it was and what it was about and how I'd managed to um, implement some of these changes in my thought processes and stuff. And I told him to read a book, which is a fantastic book called The Happiness Trap by Russ Harris, who's an Australian guy that um, is a big part of what they call acceptance and commitment therapy. Um, and it's all about acceptance of your thoughts and feelings, but it's a really great book. So I, I got him to read that and kept in touch for a bit. And, and he said, you know, you've changed the way I think about my life and it's incredible. And I really think that um, people should um, should learn you know, should, could learn from this, and he was—he wanted to invest in in me. Um, so we came up with um, with Zenval, and then what I've always wanted to do, Monique, is to get the chance to be able to um, more do more than a motivational talk. You know, um, obviously, what I've been through is. You know, we've, we've skimmed across the service of a lot of it here today, but there, you know, there's there's huge amounts of learning that I've that I've gone through, um, and it's more than just sort of saying, you know, I was nearly twenty stone drinking every day, and all of a sudden I'm on the podium with a bronze medal around my neck. It, it's not. It's more than that motivation, and I wanted to break my life experiences down into. Um, into life lessons, as I call them. And, and Drew and you have both said the same things. They always question and people always want to know. So how did you do that? You know, how did you get, you know, like you said, really, from the start to go from every day to go from, um, you know, going to the pub every day to go and training every day. You know, how did you do that? And and it's not until really this year that I've been able to actually look back at that and, and understand how I did that and what motivated me to do that and what I needed to put in place to do that. And, and, so we set about this year really with Zenval to actually look at um, breaking down my life experiences into key areas of human development really and, and that's you know exercise and nutrition, mindfulness practices, mental resilience, um, you know pure mental health work and you know dealing with uncertainty and all these different areas now and, and we package it up into workshops um, and then alongside my journey, I've been very lucky enough to be spoken about a few key people that have been integral in my, my life over the last eight years. And um, I asked them if they'd be happy to part, be part of the community of the business and, and everybody that's helped me has, has been happy to be part of that. So what I present now to businesses is my, my life experience of a specific change. So if you take mindfulness as an example, I talk about Sri Lanka and the accident and and what I learned and how I felt, and I'm very honest about that. And then I then bring in one of the ladies or both of the girls from, from Sri Lanka. We then do like a workshop type thing on those specific areas, and then we have an open Q&A at the end. So it's a very different type of um, presentation or workshop to the ones that I've heard are being are done in the market at the moment because it's very real and it's very true, and I'm incredibly honest about the way that I think and, and 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 what I've done in my life, so it's working really well, and I've got some great clients, and and you know, 
people's mental health and well-being. I think we're in a we're in a world now where people are far more aware of it, um, and it's being talked about more, which I think is a great starting point. But I think um, we're still a long way from actually understanding and 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 helping people change. And I and I know that helping people change but helping helping people deal with their thoughts and emotions better and I certainly know from the trawling and all the different therapists that I've seen that there's there's very few people out there that really 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 get it and and um and you know when you find them and you really when you find yourself that's when the good start good stuff starts to happen and so do you have any rewrites up your sleeve you know, I always thought that the next thing was going to fix me or the next thing was going to be brilliant or the next thing was going to be this or the next thing was going to be that. I think my main rewrite for the rest of my life will be to engage in everything that I do to the best of my ability in every moment of each day. And if I do that, then really the outcome or the new rewrite or, or whatever it may be for me is irrelevant because whatever's brought to me I want to make sure that I'm in the best possible physical and mental place to be able to deal with it beautiful words to live by so where can people find more out about you um so I come on and off social media (laughs) I've got a great website um that that keeps updated on and, and some new stuff and things like that and um so yeah that's www zenval z-e-n-v-a-l dot life um and i'm also there's a link on there to my linkedin um which is sort of professionally but aside to that um i'd be happy to share my email address with with you when you send this out for people if they wanted to get in touch and um you know this whole world of well-being and mental health is a, a very collaborative world and um i'm i'm open to have conversations with as, as many people as they'd like about you know any of the stuff that I've talked about today because I wouldn't be where I was today without the people that um, held their hand out to help me so wonderful well thank you so much for your time and for your generosity as well Tim it's been a pleasure thank you Monique and keep up the good work (laughs) thank you bye-bye The Rewriters is produced, written and presented by Monique Shaw, original artwork by Kiana Perry and original music by DJ Cinnamon.